Welcome to the sermon podcast from Compass Church. In this message from July 25th, 2021, Pastor Craig Kidder continues with our What is the Bible series by taking a close look at the Apostle Paul and how his life was dramatically changed by his encounter with the Ascended Jesus. Listen in to hear more about how one relationship can change everything. For more information, check out compasscfc.com. Uh, we are in the middle of a series. Well, we're at, not the middle. That's very generous. We're like, we're like at Pocono. We're like the third corner, rounding, headed toward the finish line. I know you think I don't know anything about NASCAR, but I do. All right, I, I would actually venture to vet. I've been to more NASCAR races than anybody here. I would, yeah, surprise. Uh, but we're, we have one more week left. We are rounding that last turn. The finish line is in sight. And uh, what we've been trying to do for the last 12 weeks, we've been just trying to say, let's back up. Let's see the forest. And what happens when we back up and see the forest? Man, we get reoriented. We uh, experience what secularists call wonder, but what Christians for millennia have been calling worship. That's the goal today, is that we would we'd back up, we'd see the forest, and we would just experience the king and his beauty and experience worship. So my question this morning is, what can we learn from a guy who lived 2,000 years ago in a very different cultural setting? His name was Paul. Does Paul have anything to offer us today? Does Paul have anything for our cultural moment? We live in a moment where it's so easy, super easy, almost natural to just be reactive. Life comes at us, and oftentimes when it does, we don't actually see what's really going on. We're not like just, oh, hey, I'm logically looking at this situation. Yes, this person, we're at a four-way stop, and they're shouting at me. They've probably got a lot going on in their lives. You know, they're probably overwhelmed with the weight of the world. They're just taking it out on me. I'm going to be gracious. Go for it. No. We're like, whoa, what's, what, what's your problem? Me? What are you, what's going on here? We react. It's so easy. And, and, and right now, in this moment, we find ourselves, it's easy to react in like three ways. It's very easy to react with anger. Right? Something happens, life comes at us, and we just re- react. We just get angry. It can be really easy to react with self-righteousness. You know what the problem is? You're the problem. You know why you're the problem? You're, you don't think like me. All right, and if you could just get your act together, be a little bit more like me, I wouldn't say that, but you know, I could show you some pointers and tips. We'll straighten everything out. It's easy to react in self-righteousness. And then for some of us, it's easy to react with just withdrawal. Hey, this world is kind of cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I'm taking my basketball, I'm going home. See you all when you sort it out, goodbye. The danger this morning that I want us to navigate with Paul is how do we be people who don't just react? How do we be people who don't just react to what's happening to us? And this happens in like serious ways and in subtle ways in our lives. Like so, you know, trying to eat healthier, trying to, you know, be healthy, you know. So, you know, say to my wife, hey, I just don't want to eat Oreos, okay. If you see me not, if you see me eating Oreos, just try to like, hey, what are you doing eating Oreos, right? So I'm eating Oreos. And what does Amy do? She's like, hey, what are you doing eating Oreos? How do I react? What's your problem? What do you have against me, right? Like, what did I, what did we try to make me feel bad? What did I do to you? Come on, I'm just eating Oreos. I've been good. What are you, what's your problem? This is a true story. Uh, 
if, if I see conflict and it's like not my conflict, that conflict becomes a spectator sport, okay? So uh, we were just coming back from St. Louis and the, the car was out of gas, so we're at break time. And I'm filling it up. And as we're pulling in, we'll call party A Texas, okay? There's this minivan with Texas license plates. And I remember they were like kind of parked weird in the spot. And so, you know, I had to like kind of go around and do some finagling. And I finally get there. I'm pumping my gas. And uh, Texas takes off. And, you know, I can't see them because I have a minivan because I'm cool. And uh, I can't see over the minivan. And I just hear like honking and some yelling, okay? And let's just say I, they weren't church words, okay? So what happened? I'm like, oh, this is exciting, right? This isn't my problem. This is exciting, right? So Texas kind of circles around. They're driving away in Missouri, Oh, Missouri pulls up. Missouri guy, Missouri girl, right? It wasn't enough. I don't know what Texas did, but it wasn't. However, whatever situation they found themselves in, Missouri did not feel like the situation was resolved by a simple honk and some shouting. Uh, they continued to shout. And so Missouri guy gets out of his car, and he's like, yeah, and he's like pretty confident, and he starts yelling at Texas. And I'm like, this is interesting, right? Not my problem. So I'm pumping, and uh, Texas is driving away, and then Texas stops. And then out of Texas, this, this woman gets out of the car. And I, I'm, okay, like, what, what's happening here? I'm just watching, mind my own business. And, and, and just so you know how my brain works, too, I'm trying to think of something funny that will diffuse the situation. So I'm, like, running these scenarios through my head. I got my kids in the car. They're hearing all this wild stuff. And I'm thinking, like, oh, would it be funny? To, no, that wouldn't. How? And so I'm watching. And so Texas is very confident. And she walks up to Missouri. She's trying to, you know work this out. She walks up, and, and Missouri starts to, like, get less confident, right? He's a little scared. But Missouri's girlfriend, we assume, is very confident, and so she's yelling back at Texas. And now, Missouri guy is stuck in the middle, and he's, so he shouts back, hey, to Texas, how old are you? You know, and I'm like, nah, there are, there's probably more relevant information than we need right now, but that's fine. And so I'm pumping, and she goes, he's like, what are you, 16? And she's like, no, I'm 21. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's on you, bro. Like, that was a dumb question, right? So this 21-year-old Texas gets really close to Missouri. And they're like, they're going at it again, not church words. And I'm just like, man, this is, this is better than YouTube TV, right? <laughs> and then, but then the, the van doors of Texas slide open. And there's other people. And they're also ready to go. And I'm like, oh. This isn't cool anymore. This isn't funny. This is a real situation with real people. What am I? I have real kids in the car. What's happening? And so I did something I've never done in my entire life. I put the gas nozzle back, and I did not wait for it to say thank you. I just and like, drove off. I think I had like a quarter tank, right? It's very easy to find ourselves in situations like that and respond with like self-righteousness, right? What are those people's problems? Those people, I mean, geez, they're like responding at like an eight, which really probably should have just been a two, right? It's very easy to be self-right, to react. Thank goodness I'm not like Texas and Missouri. I mean, those people need help, right? However, I have, and this is, I'm not alone here. I'm not going to take the fall alone on this one. I have been at four-way stops here in Columbia, Missouri. And again, I'm not from here. I'm from the Northeast. We do four-way stops differently in the Northeast. Here's how you do a four-way stop in the Northeast. When you come to the four-way stop and you're there first, you go. That is not how you do four-way stops here in Columbia, Missouri. In Columbia, Missouri, how you do a four-way stop is you're there to make friends. You just pull up and you're like, you go, you go. 
I'll go. Oh, no, you go. And then you go. Hey, you behind me. You go, okay? <laughs> come on. Come on, sir. You go. You go, right? How do I react to that? That is Craig Contra Mundo. Don't these people know I have somewhere to be? What, what in the world are these people doing? Did, have they ever, did, where do they hand out licenses in Missouri? Is there just some guy in a corner handing them out to nice people? Like, this is, why, why, why? Now, it's very easy to look at Texas and Missouri and be like, man, those people are like an eight. I'm on that same spectrum. Things happen, I react. I don't have clarity in those moments. I'm just reacting to what's coming at me and making it about me. Don't they know I have somewhere to be? They're doing this to me on purpose. How do we be people who don't react? Well, there was a guy who lived 2,000 years ago who reacted as well to the situation that he found himself in. He was reacting quite strongly. He was reacting with violence. All right, the Jesus movement is taking off, and he takes it upon himself. Ain't nobody asking him to do this. He's like, I'm going to crush this movement. All right? He's reacting. He's like, this isn't right. This isn't how the world should be. These people are a threat. And he reacts. It's the text that we're about to read in Acts 9 says he was breathing out violence. Breathing out violence. Remember Luke talked about the church. This is the author of Acts being punny. When God breathes out, he breathes out new life. Paul at this point is breathing out threats and violence. But then we move. We see this amazing thing happen. We see this guy going from being a violent person who sought to destroy the church. And then, in just a few short years, how he describes himself, how he thinks about Jesus, he says this about Jesus. He's trying to destroy the Jesus movement. Then a couple years later, he says this, Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. How do you do that? How do you make that move from just reacting, responding, flying off the rails to then going and ultimately dying for your enemies? What happens? Well, he saw something. He saw something on the road to Damascus. And I'm confident that if we see the same thing, we will move from being people who react to people who respond in the same way with the kingdom of God. We don't have to respond with anger, with self-righteousness, or with withdrawing. We can respond to hard situations with the kingdom of God. Paul's encounter on the road to Damascus shaped his identity. The book of Acts narrates it three times. Paul talks about it in several of his letters. Something happened to him that fundamentally changed him. And what happens is we can read this really fast. Oh yeah, he saw Jesus. But the biblical authors, what they're doing is they're, they've set up the story the whole way through and it just starts going off like crazy with Paul. And we don't have some of the same, like, there's going to be, like, clues and signals that we just aren't aware of that we're going to have to spend time thinking about. So, for example, right, uh, if I were to say to you, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark, and I were to say, that what Shakespeare play is that from, some of you would say, yes, thank you, I, thank you. We got some Shakespeare fans out there. I'm trying to read them. I don't get it. Uh, if I were to say to you, stem or steam, which is it? Is it stem or is it steam? You would say it's, yeah, see? Now, if we were to put ourselves in Paul's shoes and we were to say those same things, he's like, what? 
because they have different, different like, ingredients that they're playing with, different culture, different context. The culture that Paul was in, there's all these things going off like crazy in the story of the Damascus Road. And the original audience would have been like, whoa, this is huge. Paul saw something massive. And here, we're just going to give it away. I'm gonna, just going to put all the cookies on the table now, and we'll unpack them later. Here's what I think Paul saw. And it's, hang on. I believe that on the road to Damascus... God pulls back the curtain and lets Paul see the end of human history, as we know it, the end of the, the point, the goal we're all headed towards. God pulls back the curtain and says, here's, where, here's how the story ends. Here's where we're headed. I think Paul saw the inauguration ceremony for Jesus when Jesus is exalted as king. I think God let Paul see where human history is headed toward. He let him see, hey, this world, the kingdom of God, which entered into the world in Eden, and then Satan came and dumped a bucket of paint on it. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. And we are headed toward a future where he is crowned king of kings, lord of lords, and that's the future you're headed toward. And so we can navigate four-way stops in mid-Missouri, trying to diet and feeling guilted. We can navigate a tense political situation. We can navigate uh, people that we don't have any, uh, neighbors that we have no idea how to reach them and nothing in common with. We can navigate this cultural moment of major social disruption. We can navigate that because we know where the story is headed. And so Paul gets a glimpse into the end of that story. And so if you just hang on with me, we're going to unpack where I'm getting that. We're going to unpack what Paul saw. And then we're going to see that it's an invitation for us to do the same. To see the king in his beauty. And again, the word for that is worship. We're going to see Jesus exalted and there's only one appropriate response. Surrender. Praise. Love. So we're going to see that this morning. We're going to unpack what it was that Paul saw. And we're going to hope to see the same thing he did. Now, just a word before we read from Acts chapter 9. It's a little confusing, but we'll unpack it. Paul has two names. Okay? Because he lives, he's, remember he's in exile. So he's a... Jewish person in exile in Rome. So Jew and Gentile. So he's got two names. He's got a Hebrew name, Sha'al, Saul. And he's got a Greek name, Paulos. Okay? So we call him Saul and Paul. All right? And it, it might get confusing. Sometimes I call him Saul. Sometimes I call him Paul. Because I just, I don't have that much control over what comes out of my mouth. So sorry. So don't be confused. Same person. Okay? And we're going to read in the story we read. He's called Saul a bunch of times. But once he gets because he's still in, the book of Acts says that Jesus will give witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Paul's the get them to the ends of the earth guy. If the, if the gospel really is true, it can't just affect a small amount of people. It has to go global. So Paul takes it global. We're here in this room because Paul went global. If Paul never made it to Philippi, this is just a field. All right? We're here. God, God used a man, a real person named Paul, to say, let's rescue the world. 
and we get to be invited into that rescue mission. So, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be. This is one of the three times where the author of Acts narrates Paul's conversion story. Now, just a quick word, okay? Paul was what's called a Pharisee, okay? A Pharisee. Wild oversimplification, but basically, here's what you need to know as we read this. The Pharisees didn't have like an HR department that was like, hey, go kill Christians, all right? Paul, for the next two weeks, this is going to be your task. You're going to go kill Christians. Paul takes this upon himself. He sees Christians as a threat to Israel's purity, and so he takes it upon himself to go crush this Jesus movement. We talked about last week, this new humanity that's breaking out. He takes it upon himself, all right? He's wildly zealous, and he sees something, and he's a totally different person, all right? So Acts chapter 9, what did Paul see? Would you please stand with me as we read God's word? This is Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That, by the way, pause for a second. That is an echo back to uh, Acts 8.3, which says, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Lovely guy, right? All right. So he, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, again, whether men or women, he was an equal opportunity destroyer, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man uh, from Tarsus called Saul. He's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. 
he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. God, I pray that this morning we would experience what it's like to have worship realigned. That really is what we're after, God. God, fix our gaze on you. I pray that we would see the king in his beauty. We would see what Paul saw, and that would help us navigate this moment we're in. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. You can have a seat. The beauty of the Christian message is that we're not offered necessarily a theology. We're not offered a psychology. What Paul was offered on the road to Damascus is a relationship with a person. Christianity is is an introduction to a person. Do you notice on the road to Damascus, a desk doesn't appear with a notebook and Saul's all of a sudden in a classroom and someone's like laying out the facts, like, hey, here's what you got wrong. All right, you're class in session and now you need to, all right, check these boxes, know these things. No, Saul had an experience with a person and it changed him. There's a person, there's a, there was an explorer under Elizabeth I, his name was Raleigh. Uh, Raleigh, North Carolina is named after him. Uh, This picture is a a portrait that hangs in a museum in London. And Raleigh was like one of those wild explorers that you've probably never heard of. He made it to the coast of North Carolina. He uh, also allegedly was searching for the mystical place of El Dorado. I mean, this guy was just a wild explorer. And people in his day are like, "What, what would make someone leave the comfort of their own home to head out and potentially die just to find new lands? And again, it, it wasn't, people imagine, the artist, this artist imagines, it wasn't that Raleigh was sitting in a class and people gave him information. Like, now if you go to North Carolina, they've got good basketball, barbecue, and so that's why you should go to North Carolina. No, here, here's, here's the imagination, is that an older, wiser sailor is casting a vision for him, telling him what life at sea is like. And look, he's captivated, he's excited, he's saying there's life, there is adventure here. The invitation from Paul's experience on the road to Damascus is that we would sit with an older, wiser person who experienced something, and again, not just intellectually, but that we would see what Paul saw, that we would meet the same person whom he met. And, and you have to understand, remember we talked about like we have different cultural catalogs from Paul? Paul was a Bible nerd. All right, this guy knew the Bible like it was going out of style. All right, he knew, I mean, he just, he had no doubt books of the Bible memorized. He was, he studied under one of like the biggest uh, rabbis in the second temple period. He was a big deal. He totally knew this. And so here's this guy who knows the Bible, who sees this Jesus movement erupting, and he reacts by saying, this is bad. This is dangerous. This needs to be stopped. He has zeal and he wants something good. It's kind of like a character we met earlier in the story, a guy named Moses. Moses sees Israel being oppressed. Israel's enslaved in Egypt. And Moses is like, this isn't good for Israel. And according to this guy Saul, he sees Israel being deceived by a false teacher. All right? This isn't good for Israel. So Moses responds with violence. He's like, yo, I'm going to rescue Israel. Let's fight back. Saul also responds with violence. This isn't good. This is false teaching. Let's fight back. And then both of them have an experience. Both Moses and Saul have an experience 
where they see something unnatural. You remember Moses is walking and he sees a burning bush. And in Exodus 3 verse 4, a voice calls out of that burning bush and it says, Moses, Moses. It says his name twice. Why? Because in Hebrew culture, if you want to show someone affection, if you want to say that you love them, you say their name twice. Paul, Saul at this time, is, is on the road to Damascus, minding his own business. He's setting out to destroy uh, this, this false movement. And he hears his name twice. Saul, Saul. Now, if we just had the information like, man, Jesus shows up in grace. Isn't that beautiful? Like, like, this guy was trying to destroy both men and women. He was dragging them out of their homes. And Jesus shows up with love and affection. That's amazing. But it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than that. What's happening is the experience Moses had, Paul is now having that very same experience. How do we know that? Because what, is, what does God say to Moses in Exodus 3? Moses says, hey, if I go to Israel and they're like, who, who sent you? Who's this God? Tell them what? My name is I am. Well, Paul sees Jesus and he's like, who are you? What in the world's going on? And what does uh, Jesus say in verse 5? I am Jesus. We're like, what's so special about that? There's a way to introduce yourself in uh, the Greek language. And it's not by saying, ego eimi. Okay? Ego eimi. Some of you... Bible nerds out there might be familiar with that. That's the phrase, I am. That's the same phrase that, that God says to Moses in the burning bush. I am. Jesus in John's gospel says, ego, amy, seven times. Because he's saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. Before Abraham was, ego, amy. And now Jesus shows up just like how Moses had this experience. And he says, I am. Whoa. Something really significant is happening here. Something big. It's not just like a coincidence. It's not like, well, these things sound a lot alike. Deuteronomy 18.15 says this. Moses, he goes on to say this. In Deuteronomy 18.15. One day a prophet like me will come. You need to listen to him. Deuteronomy 18.15. One day a prophet like me will come and you need to listen to him. Certainly that's Jesus. But now we're also seeing that that ministry gets given to Paul. He has this experience and he's getting sent out on the rescue mission. Just like Moses was sent out, rescue Israel. Rescue my people from slavery. I hear them. I see them living in this wild air. I, I, this is not the end. I'm going to rescue them. Just like that. Now Jesus is sending Paul. Go rescue. And who is he supposed to rescue? Look with me at uh, verse 15. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. He's sending him to rescue the nations. God's rescue mission is now headed into full swing. God's saying my world was broken in the Garden of Eden and I'm going to rescue my world. And he shows up to Paul and says, let's go. Let's go. Go. God is on a rescue mission. He hasn't left the world in its chaos. He's saying we are going to set evil right. We are going to reverse the curse, Paul. Get ready. And that gives Paul a level of authority. Uh, I went to a small Bible college 
in Southern California, and if any of you went to small Bible colleges, maybe had similar experiences, uh, people get like churchy, scripturey tattoos. And again, if you have churchy, scripturey tattoos, this is a judgment-free zone. Uh, you are loved. I'm super glad you have those. Uh, but uh, this is why I don't have them. And again, I've wanted to. I just have a wife who's like wiser than I am. Um, but so this is what happened. When I was in Bible college, uh, the word servant is doulos. And so lots of people are like, yeah, I'm a servant of Jesus. Doulos. Get it tattooed here. Get it tattooed here. That's so hardcore. And I, there, no joke, there was a guy, his name was Jason. He lived uh, in the dorm beside me. He had the word doulos tattooed like across his chest. And it was like huge, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> cool. Right? Here's why I don't get like churchy tattoos or like scripture tattoos is because like once you learn a little bit more, it doesn't always mean what you thought it meant and it's, and then you're stuck. Uh, so when Moses is called a servant of Yahweh, it's not like we think of servant as in, oh, I have servants, people who rake the yard for me, uh, people who, you know, clean up the dishes. They're called kids, right? That's not, that's not what uh, God has in mind when he calls Moses his servant. Servant means a, someone who's designated a special spokesman, someone you should listen to. So in the beginning, you know, we know this because the beginning of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is called the servant of Yahweh and he has Joshua, his assistant. But then after uh, Moses dies, Joshua says, oh man, look at the servant of Yahweh. And then he's Joshua, the son of Nun. And at the end of the book of Joshua, he becomes Joshua, the servant of Yahweh. He's saying, I'm God's appointed spokesperson. I'm a leader. Paul then gets that title. In the book of Romans, in Romans 1.1 and Titus 1.1, that's how he introduces himself. He's saying, I'm Paul, servant of Christ. He's saying, like, I've been given authority. Well, what gave him authority? This experience. Just like Moses met Jesus and was sent out on a rescue mission, Paul met Jesus and was sent out to rescue us. What can this guy help us learn about the world we live in and navigate? That sin doesn't have the last word. Uh, this is totally anecdotal, but I'm not the only one who's been seeing this. Um, when the coronavirus hit, the way that the media reported it and covered it was a little different than past tragedies. So I remember being a kid, and when 9-11 hits, all right, 9-11 hits, and terrible tragedy, and people get on the news, and there's, you know, a pastor, there's a rabbi, there's an imam, and they're saying, why did God let 9-11 happen? On national news, right? And then even like 2000, was it 2005 when that massive tsunami took out like 100,000 people? I remember NPR, they did this interview with, I think John Piper was on it, pastors. Why did God let this happen? Fast forward, 2020, the coronavirus breaks out. And I didn't see this. If you saw it, that might, maybe it is. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I'm not the only one seeing this. The coronavirus happens and we're not asking anymore why did God let this happen? We are explaining it away with science. Here's why the coronavirus happened. Here's the science behind it. We're living in an age that's trying to just build a roof. There's nothing above. There's nothing below. And it's like, well, actually, where is God? Where is God when we lose friends? And I don't just mean Friends die. That, as tragic as it is, when we lose friends because of the wild polarization, when there's people we just can't talk to anymore, where's God? We sing it, we believe it, even when I don't feel it, you're working. I don't feel it. Where are you? 
And the beauty of what Paul saw on the road to Damascus says, yes, this world still groans, but it's headed toward something. It's headed toward an end where Jesus is exalted. And as Paul, Paul often drops hints, and when we know what he saw, it helps make sense. He talks about in Philippians 2 that there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Because Paul saw that history's headed there. History's not headed toward a dead end. History ends with Jesus being crowned king and then setting everything right. And that rescue mission is what you and I are invited to not only experience, but to embody. We are fundamentally people who are not trying to react with self-righteousness. You know what the problem is? They took prayer out of schools. And so you know what I need to do? I just need to complain about it on social media. All right? Is prayer great? Yes. Not knocking prayer at all. But it's so easy to just react in these moments. It's so difficult to see people in need and say, hey, they have no idea history is headed toward this beautiful moment where Jesus is crowned king and he's going to set things right. Do I have compassion? Am I hurt? Am I broken? Do I long for people to see that? Do I long to see that myself? Or do I just want to be angry that the world isn't how I think it should be? Or just want to be self-righteous? Or do I just want to just, I don't know what to do, I'm out. That's not who we are. How do I know that's not who we are? This gets crazy, all right? Here we go. Look with me at uh, verse 5 again. Who are you? Saul said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, wait with me for a second. All right, remember we read Saul, uh, Acts 8.3? Saul began to destroy what? Acts 8.3, he was destroying the what? The church, so not Jesus, going house from house, and he dragged off who? Jesus? No, men and women. All right, and then Acts 9.1. Saul was breathing out murderous threats against who? The Lord's disciples. So why is Jesus saying you're persecuting me? He's not. He's persecuting these people. What's happening here? Well, Jesus so closely identifies with his people that when you attack his people, you hurt him. And theologians call that union with Christ. We are so united to Jesus that our pain is his pain. Likewise, we are so united with Jesus that his victory is our victory. Paul loves to talk about this using two words, in Christ. We are in Christ. Paul experienced that as correction at first. Paul, you don't get it. I came and I've united myself to people. We're one now. We were, we were alienated because of sin and rebellion, and I'm setting that right. And now you are fighting against me. And by the way, history is moving to when I set things right. And that changed Paul. Look, and we didn't get to, we had 12 weeks to go through this, what is the Bible? We'll, 
we're going to revisit this in different areas, maybe on a podcast, maybe in Sunday schools. We're, we're going to circle back around. Because one of the things we didn't get to talk about, because we didn't want to stay here for forever, uh, was the, there's these two prophets, and they're really important. Their names are Daniel and Ezekiel. Daniel and Ezekiel, they're wildly important. If you grew up in church, you know one thing about Daniel. Uh, he hung out with some lions. That's cool. That's very, that is not the full story. Uh, likewise, you may, you may be familiar with Ezekiel. There's a, there's a religion called, called uh, Kabbalah or Kabbalah uh, where it's like Jewish mysticism. That, again, is just Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel 1 is weird. It's very weird. Don't believe me. You're like, don't call the Bible weird. Read Ezekiel 1, okay? Uh, rabbis sometimes wouldn't let people read it until they're 40 years old. A lot of weird stuff going on in it. Um, but here's what happens. Here's what happens in Ezekiel, okay? And let's compare it with what Paul saw. Okay, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1.4, it's his birthday, he's walking beside a river, he sees a bright light, boom, right? Paul sees a bright light. Coincidence? Maybe, you know, people see bright lights. All right, Ezekiel 1.26, he sees, Ezekiel, remember there's these wheels and there's like a throne on wheels and it's kind of weird, like what's going on? Ezekiel goes up into the throne room, so who's throne, who, who has a throne? Kings, right? So he sees an exalted king, God, but then as he's looking around the throne room, he sees a person, like, as in a human being. And he's like, what? Like, you don't belong in here. Why is there a human being in God's throne room? Okay? So he falls to the ground. Paul, likewise, sees an exalted. That's the bright lights because Jesus is exalted. He sees the bright lights and he falls to the ground. Where are we getting that Jesus is a human? Okay. Presidents of the United States have titles. Okay? So if you or I were to meet the president of the United States, they would probably introduce themselves as, hey, this is the commander-in-chief, all right? Hey, this is the president of the United States, right? More than likely, they may not introduce themselves as, hey, I'm Joe. What? You know, that would be kind of disorienting, right? Jesus, likewise, has lots of titles. Jesus is Lord, all right? And he's a little more important than the president. He's Messiah. He's king of kings. He's alpha and omega. How does he introduce himself to Paul? Hey, I'm Jesus, very, very rarely, very rarely, especially out of the Gospels, does Jesus just call himself Jesus. It's really rare. I think there's only about five times where he's just called Jesus, especially by himself. And so he's trying to highlight, I'm a person. So just like Ezekiel saw an exalted person, now Paul's seeing an exalted person. Well, why? What, what matters? So Ezekiel receives a promise. Hey, you're going to receive the Spirit. You're going to receive the Spirit. When this person gets exalted... They're going to, God's spirit is going to set out like crazy. What does Paul receive? The spirit. Ezekiel's vision is really similar. Daniel sees almost the identical thing. Um, in Daniel 7, he sees an exalted human in God's throne room. And then later as they're talking about that vision, his friends who are with him, they, they, they get terrified. Like they hear things, but they can't see anything and they run and hide. Same thing with Paul. He sees an exalted human and his companions, they, they hear Jesus' voice, but they don't see anything. There's so many clues throughout that what are we seeing? Well, Daniel 7 helps us unlock it. Yahweh's nickname is the cloud rider. And so they see, Daniel 7, he sees a person, a human, riding on a cloud up to God's throne room. And he sits down in an empty seat. What that is, is the biblical authors are saying this. This human being is exalted with God. And all those similarities are exactly what Paul saw. What, what 
and it's not just me that's saying this. So uh, Abner Chow, he's the interim president of the Masters University. He says this, Paul understands that he sees the same glorious individual as his predecessors did in their visions. Salvation has come in Christ as Isaiah envisioned. The spirit has come in Christ as Ezekiel proclaimed. Jew and Gentile have come together in Christ as Daniel saw in his vision. So part of the way I do theology is if there's two theologians that just like don't ever agree on anything, but then they agree on one thing, I'm like, that's probably true. So Abner Chow is like a bizarro N.T. Wright. They don't agree on hardly anything, but they agree on this. This is N.T. Wright talking about Paul on the road to Damascus. As we reflect on what Paul the Apostle came to say about the incident much later, it would make perfect sense to suppose that he had been meditating upon Ezekiel's vision and seeking, if he could, to glimpse for himself what the prophet had seen. Again, here's Abner Chow. The entire Bible is moving, growing according to a common purpose and towards a common goal. The exaltation of Jesus as Lord. Human history is not going to end up in a cul-de-sac. Human history is going to end up in a throne room where we see Jesus exalted as Lord and he will remove and wipe away every tear. He will reverse the curse. We don't have to get stuck. We, life hurts. I'm not trying to minimize pain. I'm not trying to say this makes life easy. But this gives us endurance. Look, look at this. Why, again, back in Acts chapter 9 with Ananias. All right, why in the world? Look at what Jesus says. He's going to go to the Gentiles. He's going to bring this good news, this message to the Gentiles. Then in verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How does a guy go from a life where he is committing violence against people to a cruciform life where he's suffering for people? Well, he saw something that was worth getting out of bed in the morning. He saw something that was bigger than the moment he was living in. And he saw Jesus on his throne. He saw Jesus setting things right. Look, we live in an age of massive social disruption. Massive social disruption. A couple weeks ago, a Gallup poll came out. Now, your, your discernment antennas should go up, okay? Anytime pastors talk about statistics, just put your discernment antennas up, okay? But, so we don't know what to make of this. This is just some folks' assessment of what's going on. So according to a recent Gallup poll, you've been warned. Uh, they estimate that one-third, one-third of regular churchgoers have left the church, and these experts say never to return again after corona. So corona hits, and according to this Gallup poll, a third of folks have left the church never to return again. For the first time since the 1930s, for the first time since the 1930s, less than half the population is tied to a religious community. For the first time since the 1930s, less than half the people we know go to either church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Remember we talked about the news? We talked about the news, hey, like there's nothing above us, nothing below. How's that working? 
Secularism has written checks. Can they be cashed? We are living in an age of massive social upheaval. And are we happy? The United States, and again, there's no judgment in this. People are getting helped. That's wonderful. But the United States consumes more antidepressant medication than anywhere else in the world. We have an opioid crisis. How are we doing? Is everything okay? Uh, there's a, a, a Yale-educated historian who points out uh, about the prohibition in the early 20th century. Uh, for those of you who don't know, college students in here, alcohol used to be illegal in America. All right? And we look at that and we're like, what? Why in the world would they outlaw alcohol? That's pretty wild. And also, do you know how hard it is? Do you know how difficult it is to pass a constitutional amendment? It is wildly difficult. All right? But at the time prohibition passed, 85% of Americans, 85% were in favor of outlawing alcohol. Why? Because they were watching it destroy society. This historian goes on to say, we were living in a time where we were shifting from an agrarian society to an industrial society. Anybody read The Grapes of Wrath, right? Everything was like that, right? So everybody's leaving the farm. There's no jobs out there. You've got to go to the city. People get taken advantage of. And it sent society into total upheaval. So much so that we were all medicating with alcohol. All right? This historian goes on to say that we are living in a time of greater social upheaval. As we move from an industrial age to a digital age. An industrial economy to a digital economy. And he's saying that the, the disruption of is going to be bigger than the disruption in the early 20th century. He said when historians write the message about us who are alive today, they're going to write one about a time of how people just coped with flipping from an industrial to a digital age. How are we medicating? How are things going? How do we be people who live in this world and don't just react to it? How do we be people who feel the weight of things aren't well? We're not like, woohoo, everything's great. Jesus. We need to see something that's outside of our purview. The great American theologian Francis Schaeffer once said, If you marry the spirit of this age, you will be a widow in the next. If you marry the spirit of this age, you will be a widow in the next. We are not people. Our fundamental identity is not people who just jump in and react to everything happening around us. Our fundamental identity is not that. We're people who we've experienced God's rescue mission and we are on mission with him. We're also people who are deeply united to Jesus. And the invitation is to see the king in his beauty. To see him exalted and know that's where we're headed. The road is not home. We don't want to make the road home. We don't want to pause. We don't want to stop. We are headed somewhere else. I grew up in church, uh, and I must have been 12 years old when I heard this story. I couldn't have been older than 12, and it stuck with me. All right, so again, you want to think about your discernment antenna when pastors talk about uh, stats. You also want your discernment antenna up when pastors tell stories, okay? As far as I know, my pastor told the story. It was something that happened to him. It sounded true, okay? So uh, there had been a couple that was going to our church, 
church I grew up at. And uh, the wife was a Christian. She was faithful. She was loving her husband. But the husband wasn't a Christian. And he would go drink away his paycheck, is what was said. And the, the wife was just a faithful presence. She sought to just love her husband, pray for her husband, know her husband. And one day, the miraculous happens. The husband meets Jesus. And so it's great. The pastor meets him that Sunday morning. He's like, hey, I'm so glad to meet you. And then, uh, you know, doesn't think anything of it. It was like, oh, it's cool. You know, a couple days go by and the wife calls the pastor and says, you need to talk to my husband. I what happened. He put his whole paycheck in the offering plate. We got bills to pay. We need money. You got to give that back to him. Okay, okay. All right, I'll call. The pastor calls the husband. He's like, hey, man, like, I don't want to be in trouble with your wife. Like, that's very generous of you. That's so thoughtful of you. But you can't put your whole paycheck in the offering. Like, you know, you got bills to pay. The man replied, nope. The pastor's like, dude, I don't want to be in trouble with your wife. You need to take the, we'll, we'll come over. I'll, I'll give you a check. We'll, we'll make this right. Pastor, just let me do this. Why? Why is it so important that you put your whole paycheck in the offering? I, we don't need it. He said, pastor, I can't tell you how many times I put my whole paycheck in a liquor store. I can't tell you how many times I put my whole paycheck at a bar. Just let me do this one. Just let me do this one. How does someone do that? How do you move from being married to the spirit of your age and being stuck to being sacrificial? Well, you see something that's bigger than the spirit of your age. And the only thing, the only thing bigger is a person. His name is Jesus. And we are moving toward a throne room where he will be exalted. And the only appropriate, the only appropriate response is worship. So let's do that. God. God, I pray that we would see the king in his beauty, that we would worship Jesus right now. God, I pray for your spirit to move, to help make us alive, to experience your presence. God, I pray that we would be people who sit at your feet in wonder. God, we know you can do it. We know you long to do it. So we are here with open hands and we receive. Spirit, move in us today. Amen. This sermon is part of the ministry of Compass Evangelical Free Church in Columbia, Missouri. We seek to be a church where Christ's love is at work transforming lives through the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. For more information, check out compassefc.com.